What powered innovation in Britain? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Anton Howes. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Anton Howes. Anton is a historian of invention. He is head of innovation research at the Entrepreneurs Network, a UK-based think tank focused on encouraging innovation and entrepreneurship. And he is also historian in residence at the Royal Society of the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce, having written its latest history. And for two years, he was also a lecturer in economic history at King's College London. He received his PhD in political economy from King's College in London in 2016, and was a postdoctoral research associate at Brown University's Political Theory Project. He is currently writing a book on why innovation accelerated in 18th century in Britain, which in turn led to the Industrial Revolution. Some of this work will form the basis of our discussion today. Anton, welcome to The Curious Task. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. Our question today is what powered innovation in Britain? Your work on this topic, at least in one of your papers for sure majorly, says it's tracing the acceleration of innovation in Britain from 1547 to about 1851, from Britain as an innovation backwater to a time where it is regarded as the forefront of technology. To find out how that transition happened, there's a lot of in-between, of course, that covers a lot of years. I want to do something fun, actually, to start off our conversation today by actually painting a general picture of the beginning and end of this story and then diving into the middle, if you will. So, So to kick it off, Let's have you paint the picture for us with where technology was at in general in the early and mid 1500s and in Britain more specifically, what was Britain's place in that bigger picture and ultimately explain what you mean by Britain being an innovation backwater at the time. Can you sort of paint us sort of that general picture of the world? So, I mean, England is in the 1540s and earlier is primarily and overwhelmingly an agricultural agrarian based economy, right? The major export is wool. They had been for a few decades a move towards making wool cloth. So there's a bit of industrialization going on there, but of a kind of very basic style. We're not talking about lots of use of machinery. We're talking about people walking up and down with with just very basic spinning, kind of um, like a, a, a staff and distaff, a sort of spindle and distaff. We're talking about people perhaps doing a bit of weaving with a loom, but it's the kind of technologies that you'd have seen for hundreds, if not thousands of years uh, in the past. So it's, it's very much a wool-based economy in terms of what it's exporting um, and in terms of what its overall economy is like, it's, it's primarily agricultural, right? The main thing that they're doing in terms of production is just trying to feed themselves. Um, the major urban hubs are tiny. London in the early 16th century is about 50,000 people. So we're not talking some major metropolis. We're not talking some vibrant, massive city. We're not talking some kind of center of trade. It has all of these geographical aspects to it in, in the sense that you know it's a, got a decent river. It's got all sorts of, it, it could be a great trade center, but at, the, at, at that time it isn't yet. Um, and English merchants don't go very far. So you know the typical path for an English merchant if they're exporting will be hopping across the channel to somewhere like Bruges or Calais or Antwerp. Um, perhaps if they're especially adventurous, they might go to the northern coast of Spain. I think that's about the furthest they might go. Perhaps occasionally in the Middle Ages, you have English merchants going into the Baltic. Um, but actually, even by the mid 16th century, that's quite rare. 
Um, so trade-wise, it's quite restricted. Um, in terms of the economy as a whole, it's quite basic. It's not particularly diversified. You have your kind of village trades. You'll have your local blacksmith and your local miller and that kind of basic stuff. But you're not going to have major industries or you're not going to have more interesting um, specialized industries um, very often. So, you know, in terms of other exports, let's see, you'll have a bit of tin mining down in Cornwall. Um, you don't yet have much copper mining going on, which later becomes a major thing. You have a little bit of iron mining, um, but actually pretty small, pretty minor. Um, there's a bit of coal being mined up in the north as for fuel to be used for mainly for, not for steam engine or anything exciting like that, but just for kind of you know burning in your home so that you can have a fire going. Right. So again, very, very basic stuff. And the kinds of things that it would be completely unexceptional to anyone in the 14th, the 13th, the 12th, the 11th, the 10th, the 9th, the 8th, whatever century you, you choose, um, going right back to the Romans, where perhaps it's actually even more sophisticated in some, in some respects. Um, now, in terms of England vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world, I think you would point to a lot of much more interesting places if you were looking at early techno technological kind of efflorescences, these flourishings of economic growth um, or of exciting things happening. You know, you've got Renaissance Italy, where you've got these major cities starting to emerge. You've got a lot of kind of interesting people um, doing a lot of interesting things. Leonardo da Vinci is obviously the most famous one. You've got all this great art and, and, and sculpture and architecture going on. Um, Venice is perhaps the place you would go if you're an inventor because they're the kinds of they're the kind of place that are actually really going to promote invention. Um, you might go to Florence. You might even go to somewhere like Naples. Um, intriguingly, it's actually one of the largest cities in in Italy at the time. Um, and if you were looking just for a major city, thinking that okay, agglomeration effects are important. If you concentrate everyone in the same place, that's the place to be. In Western Eurasia, you're going to choose Istanbul. In, and if you're just looking at the world as a whole, you'll probably go to China, right? That's where the really, really big cities are. Um, so the 50,000 puny little town, barely a town of London, really doesn't, I think, register um, for a lot of people. And then this idea that at the end of the day, they're just an innovation backwater quote. What did you mean by that? Well, I mean that there's not really much going on in terms of invention, in terms of technology. You're starting to see a few people doing interesting things. Uh, so in the 1540s, you might choose Leonard Diggs, someone who's trying to apply basic geometry, ancient geometry, the sort of stuff that you might find in Euclid, you know, from the, from, from the, from year, a few hundred years BC. Uh, you, or you might find someone like Robert Record, again, an early writer on arithmetic, on, on geometry, essentially trying to transfer, again, Euclid's geometry, and then try to apply it to certain things, you know, like ballistics, for example, or to navigation. Um, but other than that, and, and then otherwise, you might see a few foreign immigrants, effectively, who are bringing their much more advanced and interesting skills in instrument making, in navigation, in metallurgy to England. Um, so, you know, in terms of painting, we might look at Holbein, right, Hans Holbein. So again, the German painter has come over to England. He's kind of the pinnacle of painting in for those few decades. And yes, you've got a few people who are maybe inspired by him, who are maybe start, starting to see a bit of activity beyond the kind of basic stuff that's centuries old. But if I was interested in, in, in innovation in science and technology, I'd be looking elsewhere in Europe. I'd probably be look, looking at Italy. I'd maybe be looking at the low countries. So especially around Antwerp, so modern day Belgium. Uh, 
I probably wouldn't be looking at England at all. And as I said at the beginning, it might seem a little weird, but I think it's going to provide a great pathway later for when we talk about the middle and, and what happens. So let's let's go where you're from and speed ahead in our time range to the end, actually, of this story. So we, before we get into detail, as I said, on either end of the story, let's finish it off in a way. So what does the end of our time range look like in the 1850s? Contrast Britain's uh, place in the world and what Britain looked like in and of itself um, with what we just talked about. We're speeding ahead to the 1850s now. W- what, what do we see in comparison to what you described? So the 1850s, and actually the reason I choose 1851 in particular is this kind of symbolic culmination of Britain quite clearly being the place where everyone around the world sees invention taking place, that it is the place in the world that, you know, if you're in America, if you're in Asia, if you're in anywhere in Europe, even you're looking at England, you're looking at London, or you're looking at Britain, you're looking at, and you're looking at London in particular, I think, as being the place where people go to be inventors, right? It is the kind of Silicon Valley esque type thing of the 1850s. So 1851 in particular is where you have the great exhibition of the industry of all nations being held in London in Hyde Park. You have this vast crystal palace, which would have been completely alien, I think. You know, we're quite used to skyscrapers today, but if you're thinking just lots of brick tiling perhaps or or wooden homes and then you know the kind of black smog of of industry and that's kind of your picture of London. And then you just kind of imagine this huge uh, 1,848 feet long um, building made completely of, or seemingly made completely of glass. It's actually glass and wood, and there's a bit of iron in the middle there as well. But with these huge glass panes um, in the right in the middle of London, then I think that that'll really stand out to you as being kind of modernity. It's like seeing a spaceship turn up, right? I think that's the kind of closest thing um, to it. And so you have the great exhibition of the industry of all nations in this place. And that's, in a sense, partly born out of the English being, or the British being quite paranoid about other countries suddenly now catching up to their technology. Mm. Um, but it still, I think, marks the fact that Britain is the place where it was had been happening for the past few decades, the past few centuries, at least. Um, so it's the place where People are inventing steam engines where they are improving machine and kind of machine making technology. It's the place where agriculture has made extraordinary leaps and bounds. You know, London is now the largest city in the world easily in the 1850s. You know, it's become absolutely massive. It is a trade hub. Britain has at this point got a pretty large empire as well you know it's 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 leveraged a lot of the technology that's developed in the late 16th the early 17th and late 17th centuries to go out and conquer a lot of places and then to also you know create these trade networks all all over the world um it has become the kind of a global hub and not just this kind of european afterthought in 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 not just the global economy, but the European economy even specifically. You know, it's right. it is the place where things are happening. And so it is the place where it makes sense to hold this huge event where you're going to showcase what it is that's being produced and what it is that's being invented and what the kinds of scientific advancements from all over the world in, in one particular room. And obviously, as, as I was saying at the beginning, big contrast from the beginning and end of our story. So something clearly happened in the middle there. And that's kind of what I want to slowly, slowly get into now. So um Obviously, some the acceleration of innovation and invention happened in between these two points on our timeline. So then let's let's discuss how and what and all the 
details of what happened in between. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, at a high level, and even some of our listeners may have heard some explanation as to why innovation accelerated in Britain, that part of the world at the time, you know, and you even point out in your essay, you know, some will argue about that one or two things that happened, for example, like either property rights becoming more secure, patent systems developing, uh, perhaps, you know, they point to the particular t- sort of education of people in Britain or, uh, or or the specific skills that they had relative to the rest of whatever the case may be. Some people might have their sort of pet explanation as to why if we look at this, this really formed the basis of all this innovation. And, and you said in one of your essays that all these kinds of explanation, whether it's one or the other, carry an implicit assumption. And you said that innovation has always been part of a person's set of choices. And you say that's a problematic way of thinking about it. Why is that a, a false start in your mind? Yeah, I think that's that's the crux of, of the issue, I think, for me, is that people assume that if you just get the incentives right, if you just get the funding right, if you just kind of give people the resources, um, that or you just lift some kind of constraints that they might have, uh, that people will in- invent things, that they'll innovate. Right. Um, and I just don't think that's true. I think we've become very used to innovation being everywhere, right? We, we're so acclimatized to the acceleration of innovation, which has continued to this day and, you know, become a global thing. It's not just concentrated in particular places, even, you know, even though Silicon Valley is famous, it's just particular industries are concentrated there. You've actually, it's actually a very, very global thing in terms of improvement happening across the board in every single industry you can think of. And in probably the ones that you can't even didn't even realize were industries in the first place at all, you know, and someone someone somewhere is kind of developing tomato sorting machinery that you hadn't even thought might be a thing yes, and exactly. need to be a thing, right? There's innovation has become so widespread that we just automatically assume that those sorts of things are important. But I guess my contention, and this is quite a difficult thing to prove, frankly, because improving an absence is one of the hardest things you can do, if not impossible. My contention is that people just didn't think to innovate. That actually the most important thing here is that innovation, this is the, the way I think of these things, that innovation is part of a, it's, it's, it's a mentality, right? It's something that spreads from person to person that you might not realize that you can do. Um, and so when you see someone invent something for the first time, you might look at what they've done and think, okay, I can do that sort of thing too. I can improve things. Um, and improve things in whatever realm where we, we could we could be thinking of. You know, it could be making things taste better. It could be making things more efficient, which is the kind of standard view of technology. But you know, that can be making things more valuable, making things more interesting, making things taste better, smell better, um, sound better. You know, there's there's all sorts of metrics for improvement, and that's the thing that I think is often quite rare. And so what happens is that because it's so rare, and I think even today actually. The improving mentality is quite rare. Not that many people improve things in their daily lives. You know, they, they don't necessarily go into work every day and start coming up with ways to improve the efficiency of what they're doing. Right? Some people get very set in their ways. In fact, even people who are quite inventive in some realms might not be that inventive in others. They might they might they might not apply the mentality to every realm of their existence, right? They might just do it for specific things at a specific time. So that I think is the kind of thing that is rare. And so In a sense, what I'm arguing here is that imagine you have a world in which it is extremely rare for people to improve things. That is the world pre the acceleration of innovation. So when it becomes more common, you start to see particular places have more inventors because they're inspiring one another, because it spreads almost virally. 
right? And that way you then see the acceleration of innovations first in a few places and then spreading to more and more places um, elsewhere, right? In the, in the past, if you have a problem, right? This is, this is the other, this is also the reason, so I often rail against one of my least favorite uh, phrases is that necessity is the mother of invention, right? The reason I think that's rubbish is that usually there's already an inventor who's trying to do something. They're just not getting support for it until necessity kind of makes people sit up and listen, right? That's when it appears as though necessity is the mother of invention. What actually is happening most of the time when you have necessity is that people just continue needing things, right? They, right. If there's a famine, people go hungry. Um, they don't, as in the 1540s, and 1550s start organizing when there's a when there's a commercial crisis and famine and there's all sorts of problems in the country. If there's ever necessity, it's a famine, right? Right, right, exactly. Yeah, but the, like people people respond to necessity by tightening their belts and they the, and not going out as they did in the 1550s and sending voyages of exploration. Right. This right. is this is a kind of very weird solution to a problem that is often sometimes quite risky and involves some kind of investment of some kind. Right. Um, but also a vision of what improvement looks like. And so that, I think, is, is the, the kind of crux of it. You know, the thing I keep noticing is that there are all sorts of opportunities where people could have invented things and they don't. And so what explains that absence? Well, we need to flip that on, on, on its head and say, OK, well, if we assume that people don't innovate, then what we're actually looking for is the, the spark inspiring them to actually start inventing in the first place, right? Adding this extra set of choices. So, you know, if there's a famine, you go hungry, maybe you try to plant the same way as you always did, maybe you wait, maybe you go to another town looking for food, maybe you pay more for food, or, and here's the new choice that's just suddenly appeared because you've seen other inventors doing things, you start trying to come up with better, better ways of farming and so on, right? So there's, there's different, it's, it's a kind of, improvement is another solution that's added there. Um, and I think what usually really happens is that, as I said, you often have, actually, you have inventors in the background already working at things, already trying to get support for their innovations. When you have big problems coming along, that makes things easier for them. Right. I really like how you describe that fork in the road towards the end of your uh, discussion there, the idea that if something happens, let's call it, you know, the, the necessity that's trying to push you to do something, you can either a sort of, you know, explore the different alternatives and ways you can do things within the, the pre existing set, if you will, I'll just call it that for now, or B, you can find a way to improve something. And, you know, speaking of flipping things on their head, I think that connects very nicely to a point I wanted to talk to you about, because it became clear as I was reading your work that, that you think like this. So I want to get into get into it a bit here that you say that one of the another false start that you think people have when they think on innovation is they see an invention, or they see a timeline or they see the acceleration of technology or whatever and then they start talking about you know what uh if, if, if you will what had been done that made that happen or like you know and people say things like you know necessities of other invention and so on and so forth but you say that a more illuminating way to think about all this is why something hadn't been done before and i think that's actually really the key to a lot of this thinking right is that again if you see that fork on the road in a timeline and you see something change or something improve uh, it's one thing to say oh this improved because you know these people were very well skilled in blacksmithing in this town and there and off we go but you say 
essentially to go farther back and look more, not from that point forward and then start trying to retroactively investigate, but to actually say, okay, but why wasn't this there before? That's a more interesting question to you, it seems. Yeah. I mean, the problem with asking this question all the time, we're trying to get people to think of of it these ways is, as I said, it's difficult to prove an absence, right? I'm kind of saying there basically weren't inventors in the town. And then suddenly there is an inventor in the town. And that's why you start getting inventions in that town, right? (laughs) So it's it's the... Whereas I think the assumption behind a lot of other causes of the acceleration of of innovation or the industrial revolution or whatever it is that you want to call it, a lot of them are assuming, actually, no, there's some other thing that's just people always wanted to invent and we're lifting the constraint. And so innovation kind of suddenly flourishes. Um, So someone like Deirdre McCloskey, for example, who may be familiar to a lot of your listeners, right? So, you know, she says, she kind of puts it specifically as it's like kind of lifting a stone off the grass and then the grass can grow, right? There's that's that's her model of things. It's 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 give, empowering people through dignity, but also through liberty, so that they can have a go. And I'm saying, no, you might remove the stone, and nothing happens, right? The grass just is still dead. What you need is to actually plant seeds, right? There's there's or plant grass seeds. Like there's there's something else that ha- has to happen first. And yes, you know, there may be constraints and there may be institutions and all these other things can then influence innovation. They might influence its direction. They might influence who becomes an inventor and who doesn't. They might influence what kind of problems they work on and what things they don't. But the actual thing that causes them to become an inventor in the first place is just, I think, ultimately contact with another inventor, right? It's this, it's this idea that innovation or this improving mentality, as I call it, is this viral thing that's spreading from person to person. Um, but without having come into contact with one of those people, you're never going to become an inventor, right? I think it's very rare that innovation is kind of as a thing, as a as a process, um, independently invented. Now, maybe it's happened in the past. I can't I can't prove that, right? I can't prove it either way, whether or not it's been independently invented or not. Um, but even beyond the period that I'm most expert in, which is this kind of Britain and a bit of Europe between the 16th and the 19th and the, and the mid 19th centuries. Even if you start to look at the, let's say the Islamic golden age of the 9th to the 13th centuries, you start to notice, oh, hang on. A lot of these, there's, first of all, there's actually not very many people who are responsible for all of these marvelous inventions coming out of that, that period. And actually, secondly, a lot of them know each other or you know, this person was this person's apprentice and this person was this person's uncle. And they're actually an extremely interconnected group of people. And the same with Sung Dynasty China in the 11th, 12th centuries, the same with the Italian Renaissance, the same with the Dutch Golden Age of the, of the 16th, 17th centuries. You know, these are things I would like to look into even in even more depth at some point. But again, it's actually very few people responsible for these things, which I think also kind of helps my case a bit here that actually invention is even today quite rare. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. And, and there's another point I want to get in quickly before we, we go to the break, which is connected to a lot of things we've been talking about. And what I'm about to say just is going to sound like I'm, I'm beating a dead horse on some of the stuff we talked about before, but, but you're so in this mentality. I'm trying to really introduce it and hammer it home for our listeners, which is one thing that you make sure to emphasize in one of your essays is after we, we talk about all this kind of stuff is that you really want to get across the idea that this mentality, this improving mentality is indeed separate from a particular skill or level or knowledge or, or certain level of trait. You know, the way, again, we touched on this, the way the story is often told is a blacksmith is doing something a certain way or someone's plowing a field a certain way if they, if they have the plow yet. And uh, and and then, you know, they sort of figure out a way to improve that and off we go. And, and you're saying, again, this improving mentality, it can be 
and often is independent from whether you have a certain skill set or not. And this is where you sort of bring in that savant fabricant uh, sort of paradigm. So can can you, everything I'm just sort of dumping your way, can you get a bit into that too? Because I, again, I know you live this and this is the way you think, but I think when I read your essay, like a light bulb went off for me in my head on that when you're saying this improving mentality can be found in that savant or someone that's actually has that skill in the fabricant. Sure. So the savant fabricant distinction is not one of my own, but um I've taken it from a wider literature that's been talking about this for a while, but to just characterize it for listeners, it's the difference between the heads and the hands, right? The people who are thinking up the scientific theories, let's say, and the people who are actually kind of doing the application of those things, creating technologies in the workshop, right? And often these two distinctions, these, these people actually coexist. But what's striking is that in a lot of, in a, throughout a lot of Europe, for example, often they're quite separated. You know, in France, there seems a slightly more rigid distinction than there is in Britain between the savant and the fabricant, what's, you know, socially acceptable for them to be doing, what kind of circles they're allowed to hang out with, uh, hang out in. Whereas in England, they, one of the things that's often quite striking about it is actually how mixed a group they are. And there are kind of people who are a bit of both. You know, someone like Josiah Wedgwood, who's a potter, is also kind of considered someone very interested in the science side of things. And, you know, isn't he's not just a potter, he's also a kind of scientist. Um, so these, these, these categories can overlap quite significantly. Um, but yeah, the distinction about skill versus invention, I think is an important one because people assume that a lot of invention just happens within industries. And so there's a kind of learning by doing model, if you like, which is that, you know, if we just have an industry, it'll get better over time. People will just get better at doing it. Again, I think that's presentist bias. I think that's just looking at today where this does happen because innovation is so widespread and assuming that that always happened. And in industries now are, are huge into themselves, right? And so yeah. it makes sense a lot yeah. happens within it. But at the time when we're talking centuries ago, you're right. It makes no sense just to think that's... It obviously, it's obviously rubbish, right? If we go back, iron making, right, does not go... Like it, there is not continuous improvement for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to the point we are now. No, it's actually pretty flat. You occasionally get leaps forward as people discover things accidentally, or there just happens to be an individual who is improving things. But things only really start to take off and you get advancement after advancement after advancement after advancement very rapidly within a very short space of time, basically in the 17th, 18th centuries in particular. Now you do have some things invented in other places and maybe those techniques are lost. So, you know, there's a kind of up and down before that stage, but ultimately something big and dramatic has changed. Now, the difference between skill and in innovation, I think is an important one here. So that's the assumption people have. Um, but ultimately, when I look at the, you know, the inventors who I've studied, which is well over a thousand. It's a, it's a database of close to 2000 people. It's usually about 1500 is, is the figure I cite, but actually I've, I've started studying a lot more since then. So easily 2000 people is that they're often inspired by people, first of all, who are not actually within the industries that they go on to improve. Right, right. You can have your potter inspiring someone who later goes on to do steam engineering. Um, but also they're often not just themselves confined to particular industries which I, I like to refer to them as being polymathic. And that's not polymathic as, as in they're an inventor and they're a poet. I just mean within invention itself, they're improving multiple industries or within an industry. And this is the, the thing that I don't even bother capturing. So a majority of the people I look at are polymathic with, between industries and defining industries very broadly, right? So this could be someone who's actually a dentist improving something, I don't know, vaccination or something. And I'm still just classing those as medical. So I'm, I'm not even picking up actually a lot of the, the, the kind of the polymathic elements of what they're doing. Um, 
and so within and yeah so at least you know 55% i think of the sample have this 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 trait um, but also in addition to that you have a lot of inventors who are just completely unskilled in a realm and yet they're responsible for major improvements to that industry so you get clergymen like the reverend edmund cartwright who you know he doesn't know anything about weaving of course he doesn't he's you know he's a clergyman he went to university and studied poetry and you know literature and so on and he's the one who starts automating the loom you know this is this is a huge break um from from what this what these people's skills would suggest i think actually to be honest and this is the one of the reasons one of the things i've noticed is very often a lot of what i say seems to resonate with people who do invention today and you know i think it's actually quite common that there's a just a kind of there's actually just a have a go attitude that if you don't understand something you just teach yourself if you don't understand something you find someone who can help you you know realize your vision you know nowadays one of my favorite um, ways of thinking about this is you know if you have a great idea for an app you don't need to code right you find a coder to realize your vision you can still but that doesn't stop you being an inventor it does mean that certain things may have to be solved by someone else and so you're co-inventing with someone but still it doesn't stop your your innovation if you if you sort of it doesn't detract from your innovation that you've you've had to had to work with someone else with the, uh, on something um so in some ways the way I look at these things is in some way individualistic in that I think, you know, I'm looking at individuals and how they become inventors. But the process of invention is a very social one, right? It requires people springing off one another's ideas, even if they're working, you know, one person's in one shed and one person's down the road in another shed and they never talk to one another. They're probably still bouncing off one another, you know, hopefully one another, well, excuse me, they're hopefully still bouncing off one another's ideas with one of them, you know, inventing one thing, publishing it, the other one sees that thing and saying, okay, I want to now have an improvement on top of that thing so that's already immediately a social thing even without communication or direct communication but also you have teams of inventors of course and you have people within organizations inventing things or you have people who are inventing something and just making it public and then when it becomes sufficiently known people then say okay how can i improve that thing further i think i think a great more modern example to tie like for all based on all the concepts that you've been talking about is someone like a like a Steve Jobs, like this is a very controversial character. And in the computer science field, the sort of stare, and I'm summarizing people and cheapening it just for the sake of brevity here. But you know, some people basically say the guy wasn't even a coder. So who the heck cares? And there's a lot of folks out there who from the business side, a lot in classical liberal circles too, that say, well, that's not really the point. You know, he was a great businessman and look at all these jobs he created, all that kind of stuff. But if you actually listen to the people that worked with him, um, none of that's really important. What was important, and I'm just connecting these dots as we're talking here, is that they basically always talk about his mentality and the fact that he was that savant coming to the table and working with people who maybe had skills that he didn't have. And this is actually someone that had a vision, could push it forward, articulate that vision, enforce it, and actually, again, people cite almost maybe not in the exact same words, but very close that his improving mentality is what drove it forward. Everyone that were close to him pretty much cites that. So I think that's a, that's an excellent modern example. You have debates on all sides. Like you said, there's some people that think, oh, it's about a particular skill set. You know, if you're not a computer yeah. engineer, you can't improve computer engineering. So like Wozniak and Jobs, they're both inventors. Yeah, they're exactly. They're both innovators, in my framework at least, right? They're both, they both have, I mean, another way of thinking of it that I've kind of been more recently thinking about is, you know, the improving mentality, one way of putting it is they're opt people, these people are optimizers, 
right? A lot of people know there's a, there's a certain type of person who is an optimizer. Everything they do is optimized. Like their diet, they optimize it. The way they work out, they optimize it. You know, there are certain people and you're like, how do you even find the time to look up how to do all these things? But they just love optimizing. That's the improving mentality, right? And some people have that to varying degrees. You know, for some people, it's completely debilitating. They have to optimize everything. There are actually a few inventors who I've looked at who are literally like that, where they never actually release a proper invention unless with great, great prodding from other people because they're so they're so perfectionist. They're optimizing it so much that they never they never think it's finished, right? And so, so there's a you know there are different degrees of managing your your improving mentality. But often you know a lot of them actually talk about it sometimes as being something they can't control. They actually have to sometimes stop themselves from improving things because they know that they will waste a lot of resources and time and energy trying to trying to do these things. You know, there's research. There's the action. You know, looking at the thing that you're you're going to you you want to improve, especially if you know very little about it already. If you're coming into it with fresh eyes. And then there's the actual process of coming up with the improvement, developing the improvement, testing it. You know, invention is an extremely wasteful process. And so I think there's, again, there's a kind of, I know some people talk about this as a sort of activation energy, but there's a kind of hump that you have to get over before innovation starts taking place. And I think that's actually an excellent place to take a quick break. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Anton Howes today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters, as always, on Patreon, including Randy T. Simmons, Rosa Pairello, and Sabine L. Chidiak. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Anton Howes today. So, Anton, I think the first half of our chat was really great. We spoke a lot about different concepts that are sort of in your head about uh, uh, the improvement mentality. We've talked. To, I'm basing a lot of our discussion today on one, one of your larger essays uh, about this as well, and and we focused on, on a lot of concepts and a lot of the what. I want to spend a little bit more time on the how and go into a couple more details here. And I know we can't cover all of it in our in our chat today, but but you'll see where I'm going in, in a second. So, I want to talk a bit about at a high level the origin, origins of this improving mentality. You mark this uh, sort of timeline as about 50, uh, 1550 to about 1700. And of course, I'll just toss this at you and, and you could describe it much better than me. But in the things I've read in your work in this area, am I right in summarizing, at least starting off the conversation here and saying that one thing that your work makes clear is that in this period, the word openness is crucial, or rather that the idea that the culture itself was becoming more open to knowledge transfer and sharing, regardless if we're talking about technology or innovation or not, this is where we see a lot of other things becoming open in culture in Britain at the time, whether it be literature or whatever the case may be, relative to the time, sort of a social progressivism. Is that sort of one of the keys to where this improving mentality could come from? Yeah, sort of. So yeah, I, I'm I'm trying to think of the essay that you must have you must have read there. I think in some ways my what I think about it's maybe slightly slightly changed or slightly developed, which is yes, openness is still the key element. Um, okay, well actually, you know, I'll, I'll 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 explain it this way. I'll explain it this way. A lot of people make the mistake when they look at my work as as though I'm arguing that Britain had this special improving mentality and it was just a British thing and that was the cause of the Industrial Revolution. And that is exactly not what I'm saying. 
I'm saying the improvement mentality has always, probably always existed. It's been very, very rare. Maybe it's been independently invented a few times. Maybe we had it in China, we had it in the Dutch Republic and, and so on and so forth. But at some point it comes to England, right? It, right. it comes from elsewhere to England. And think of it almost like a kind of rare disease, I suppose. It come, it's, it's viral, but it doesn't transfer very easily. And then in England, it becomes endemic, right? It becomes more and more endemic. It, 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 it starts to spread, right? The, the R number to use the kind of modern parlance. Again, this is something I came up with a long time before any pandemic, but that's, I think, what's happening here is the R number rises in England specifically, or there's a new strain of it in a sense. And I think that what, what, the, what the, the difference in the strain here is, is that inventors become much more, not just open, well, there's a kind of graduation here. They go from being quite secretive in general to being increasingly open about their methods to, and, their, and their inventions even. Um, and then really trying to spread invention further, right? They become proselytizers, evangelizers, right? Invention becomes not just a thing that they themselves do where they have this internal optimization kind of mindset, um, but rather something that they are trying to actively push onto other people. Now, like I'm, a, I, I'm an improver, you can be too, right? That's the kind of thing that you start to see more and more of. They start to theorize about invention, right? In a way that they hadn't really been doing before. You know, here's a really interesting thing. So the word improvement doesn't really even mean what we now think of it meaning in, at the beginning of the period that I'm looking at, right? If you improve something in the early 15th, uh, early, sorry, 16th century, if you improve something, what you're really talking about is probably land. And you're talking specifically about getting more rent from your land. And that could literally just be achieved by raising the rent. Right. So it's more about outcome than it is about process. Nowadays, if I say, oh, I'm going to improve the land. Right. You know that what I mean is I'm going to improve the techniques and the efficiency within which I kind of extract stuff from the land. Or I'm going to I'm going to be able to I'm going to be able to charge a higher rent as a result of investments that I've done um, to try and, you know, be able to raise those rents. Right. And that, that's where the that's where the distinction comes in. So they don't even necessarily have a language to talk about improvement. Um, but that starts to develop increasingly. And as, as a result of that development, as a result of all sorts of other, um, of other things, England, I think, becomes the place where the, the, the spread of the improvement mentality has, has the best um, conditions for it. And that's not to say that you don't see a lot of science and technology invention taking place in the rest of Europe or even the rest of the world. Um, you certainly have a lot of techniques and technologies that English people continue to be very jealous of right in, into the 18th century when they start really trying to solve those problems. You know, they're looking at Indian textiles, for example, right. and saying, okay, this, this cotton stuff is pretty nice. How are they managing to get these amazing patterns? Or, or they're looking at Turkish dyes and saying, how are they dyeing leather and, and all sorts of other things um, with this amazing red or this amazing yellow? Or they're looking at Chinese porcelain and they're trying to reverse engineer these things. So there, there are a lot of techniques that they know that, that they're not the best at. But the key thing is they're trying to they're trying to solve it themselves. They're trying to say, okay, well, we need to find out these secrets, and we, we need to be able to produce these things ourselves. Two aspects in the, in the section of the essay I'm thinking of here that that you mentioned is, is also important for this mentality for this, especially the savants at the time, was this idea that you can contest the traditions and the what's happening at the time, and you also have a vision for the benefits of progress. And again, as we say, this stuff 
today. It just sounds like, oh yeah, sure. You know, like, you know, as, as you said, almost with that word improvement, right? This what I'm saying sort of traces in the same vein, like, oh yeah, of course, you know, we're going to improve the process and contest what's been done before. But especially culturally at that time, you know, when we cast our mind back, if we're talking again, between something like uh, the mid 1500s up to like the 1700s, like, you know, go, going against whatever, whatever technologically or culturally was happening at the time, more specifically culturally could have had like, you know, religious implications. It could have had people in the community getting upset at certain things, especially if you're trying to push into a different way way of doing things. So in order for these people to actually have this mentality at that at that time, I think it almost enforces your case. Because as you said, today we think of, oh, we can optimize our own lives and look at the best amount of avocado and eggs to eat or something like that. But 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 in reality at the time, that improving mentality was going up against much more. Yeah, I think there are barriers certainly to any innovation. Um, and certainly I think during this period you do see in changes to institutions that make that spread all the easier later on in particular. Um, so the decline of guild power, for example, is one, um, which I'm still looking into. I'm still not entirely clear how that happens, but my major hunch is that actually a lot of it has to do with inventors in the early stages, in the late 16th and early 17th centuries, allying themselves directly with the monarch, um, which is where patents come from. So letters patent are really kind of monopolies granted through the royal per uh, prerogative, so by the monarchs personally, as a as a, a as an exception to existing laws, right? So if there's a ban on pubs, the monarch can say, "Well, I'm going to use my royal prerogative to to give you specifically the license for beer making beer or to have the, the pubs open." So it can be used in, in, a, in a regulatory way. It can be used to grant people citizenship or denizenship of the country, which is often the way that patents in the early days, they're more like immigration visas or high skilled immigration visas than they are monopoly patents. But also they're used for granting monopolies. And this is something that the English pick up it seems from the Venetians. So Venice in the late 15th century has developed um, the use of monopoly patents to become increasingly common throughout Europe and they eventually end up in England. Um, but what that means is that you essentially have a lot of inventors, not just English ones, but actually more, more so foreign ones. And then you start seeing more English ones kind of trying to get in on this action, basically saying, OK, well, OK, I can get these monopolies over particular industries like these foreigners can. Let's let's try and get more of these things. Um, and they're, so they, they're creating personal deals with the monarch. So patents are not like they are today where there's a system. Um, in fact, the first patent law. A lot of people misunderstand this in the 1620s, isn't creating patents. It's actually limiting what the monarch's allowed to do in, with patents. So it's actually a constraint being imposed by parliament on the monarch saying, look, you can't give monopolies that are longer than 14 years or 21 years in special cases. You can't give them for these industries. You have to give them for improvements rather than just over it total existing industries, right? Because that's threatening people's interests. And so what's happening with the use of monopolies by monarchs is they're often giving them for cash, right? They're saying, I'll give you this monopoly as long as you give me a cut of the proceeds. Um, and so that's you know, not a great thing for everyone else who's in that existing industry, perhaps, where, and that's why you, you get these limitations being imposed. But I think what it does is that process, which originally comes from the inventors themselves, right? It's them lobbying for those privileges and those privileges becoming more common as monarchs see that they're quite, they can be used quite successful, uh, quite successfully. That then undermines the existing corporations 
the guilds who have monopolies for their members over particular industries in particular areas, I think. So this is where this is where a lot of my research is now moving into. It's trying to work out, OK, you know, we, we think there's quite a lot of evidence being done by other people. Sheila Ogilvy, for example, in particular, published a book very recently kind of cataloguing all of the guilds across Europe and trying to work out whether or not they harmed innovation or whether or not they, they improved it. You know, and she says. On the whole, on balance, guilds seem to be against economic growth. They're they're extremely bad for for they're very good for their own members, but they're not right. very good for society as a whole. Um, and then she says, and England is interesting because London, especially, and England especially, seems to have especially weak guilds by the 18th century. Now the big question is why, and I think it's because of this. First of all, inventors using absolutism or using monarchs who want to be absolutist. So. We're talking Elizabeth the first. We're talking James the first, Charles the first, who loses his head over it eventually, um, with the English Civil War. Um, and it's then, as a result of the Civil War, a lot of which is motivated by this dissatisfaction with monarchs trying to use monopolists to get around existing rules and existing interest groups, that then inventors have to rebrand. And so that there's a kind of extra stage there, which fortunately ends up being pro-openness, which is that they say, okay, well, we have to do stuff that's for the public in meaning as we would think of the public today, rather than the state, which is a kind of much more specific meaning and can be, can be something that's kind of specific to the monarch, right? So they, you know, even in the late 16th century, when they're getting these privileges from the monarch, they're saying we're doing this for the public good, but their meaning of the public is effectively equal to, you know, public equals the king or the queen, you know. <laughs> so that that understanding has to change as a result of the events of the mid seventeenth century. And and pushing us a little bit more ahead here on our timeline, shifting gears a little bit. I I sort of started our train of thought there on the origins of this improving mentality, fifteen hundreds to about seventeen hundred. Um, you also talk about the the quote acceleration of improvement between like seventeen hundred, eighteen fifty, that sort of thing. And I have a quote that I pulled from you, uh, and it's uh, I'm just going to read it here because I think this is very key and interesting. So you said, especially related to this time, that Britain's innovation did not increase dramatically in number, and nor did they appear to be especially numerous relative to the rest of Europe. What made Britain special was not that it possessed people with the improving mentality. It was that British innovators in the mid-18th century became uniquely committed to spreading innovation further. They and others around them became innovation's evangelists. So this is an interesting second chunk of the story. The earlier part of the story is obviously very important. You know, the origins of the improving mentality, um, you know, contesting tradition, thinking about ways things can be done differently. Of course, that that's all very important. But that seems to be, um, when we look back at the whole story, nothing uh, if not followed by the second part of the story without the following bits of evangelism. Yeah, so I think the evangelism, since I wrote that, which was a few years ago, since I wrote that, I would now shift the whole timeline back. So, so the evangelism stage, I think, really starts to start taking root in the 1640s and 50s. Um, so in the lead up to the founding of the Royal Society, we've got the Hartlib Circle calling themselves the Invisible College. Um, if you look at the way they're talking about inventional, talking about improvement and talking about projects is the other way that they, they would often talk about it. Um, they are, they've got pretty grand plans for how the country is going to look once they've transformed it with their innovations. Um, to the extent that those of, which, those of them that are very um, puritanical are talking about restoring Eden. You know, this is, there's a lot of improvement that can be done here. 
um, where we can create paradise on earth um, and kind of undo a lot of the awful stuff that that uh, you know Adam and Eve had messed up for us. So there's there's really kind of the the, the vision is really already there in terms of evangelizing, um, and you know I think there's a there's a sometimes a religious overtone to it. Um, not to say that it was just Puritans and just dissenters who were who were inventors. You've definitely got a lot of Catholic and a lot of Royalist inventors as well in that period as well. Um, so yeah, I would shift it back, but ultimately the the, the story is still the same there. Um, and nowadays, I would say that that really it looks like Britain is already forging ahead in terms of the number of inventors and what it is that they're doing by 1700 even. Um, that's, I think you can already look at the way that foreign visitors to the country are talking about um, England, talking about London uh, in particular. And I, keep, I keep mentioning London in particular, and that's just for the, for the simple reason that it is actually just massive as a city compared to any other urban centre in the whole country. And even though a lot of the Industrial Revolution is later associated with the Midlands and the North, ultimately, even a lot of the stuff that's applied there is still invented by inventors who either start their careers or are still active in their careers throughout their careers in London or in its kind of immediate um, surroundings. And what happens in the mid 18th century and early early 18th to mid 18th century is that the kind of improvement tally that has become so endemic in London starts to spread to other centres within Britain. So you start to see kind of new centres like Edinburgh, um, you start to see in agricultural machinery improvement in particular in the east of England, uh, you start to see Birmingham becoming extremely influential as a kind of new scene, if you like, um, for innovation. So it, the 18th century is interesting, I think, because that's when it kind of goes from a particular centre and you start to see new sub-scenes in particular industries or just kind of mini versions of what's been going on in London start to pop up all over the country. Before we leave this point about sort of the timeline we were drawing here, I just wanted to make a stop on, on this one point here and sort of flip the story around because we've been talking about all the great things that happened throughout this timeline and we've been talking about you know the improving mentality taking hold and the evangelists and, and this really spreading but and i'm thinking more particularly as we get more to the relative to our timeline the more modern industrial age here specifically in the 1800s um where um a lot of people look back at this period of time and basically say look at all the invention look at all the innovation things are taking off it's great it's etc but that's not to say there also wasn't Again, new sets of barriers, you know, as compared to the 1500s, when you enter the 1800s, new sets of barriers that people, um, everyone from the sort of average, maybe skilled inventor all the way through to people that maybe had their own little business that, that were trying to m make things work better, they were facing new sorts of barriers, weren't they? I mean, this is also a, a period of time where although there was a lot of great things happening, you know, there were people trying to use modern parliamentary techniques to capture industry, keep other people out of the markets and so on and so forth. Um, that was happening to a degree. My ultimate question is just when you look at that part of, part of the timeline, specifically the 1800s, how much of that case by some people is overstated or, or even understated in terms of these people trying to do regulatory capture, new forms of patent systems, licensing, um, using property rights to, to keep other people out of markets. I know that's a big topic unto itself. This could be ours, but there is sort of that discussion, right? In the, many of our circles too, where people talk about, is it is it the era of this amazing industrial invention and, and free markets, or is it also the era where a lot of big wigs decided to use many different uh, techniques to actually capture some of their riches and then hold on to it and protect it? Yeah, I mean, there's a bit of both really. And, you know, there's this often, this, I'm often asked, as a kind of related question, you know, 
was invention always good? Well, obviously not, right? People are inventing better weapons. Um, and what I, when I say better, you know what I mean? You mean more deadly, right? There's the kind of, they're improved weapons, but they're improved in a particular way, which isn't necessarily good for everyone else, right? So, you know, that you've got improved weapons. Obviously, you have a lot of inventors who do evil, evil things as well with their inventions, um, or they create new unanticipated problems. Uh, like, you know, changes to chimneys to make them more thermodynamic end up also requiring small children to be used, employed in, in cleaning them, which then also, however, after a few decades, ends up with devices being invented to try to not have to use children in cleaning chimneys, right? So there's a kind of, there's a constant battle between different types of invention where some of them are maybe doing unmitigated good and some of them are creating problems of their own and then you have other ones that are trying to solve the problems as well so we're kind of getting into this cycle of the kind that's very familiar today where technologies can be both good and bad and and we kind of hope that the ones that mitigate the problems will will be faster than and be developed faster and implemented faster than the ones that are uh, faster than the ones that are causing problems um, but in terms of the other things that you mentioned regulatory capture and so on, i mean I just described to you how the patent system emerged as this kind of use of monopolies by inventors. You know, they can be, they're not always good people. They're not always people who, who have kind of the good of the whole country in mind, or they're people who think that the things that they're doing that might screw over others are in the long run better for the greater good. You know, there's a lot of mixed motivations. We're talking about thousands of people over this, over this period. Um, where they're doing lots of different things. So I don't think there's a straightforward answer. The other thing I would mention though, is that you, know, you, you mentioned new sets of challenges that emerge. Every generation of people who want to promote innovation, I think have to deal with their own generation's challenges when it comes to barriers to innovation, when it comes to barriers to the good that can be done by innovation. Um, and some of those barriers are ones that, as you say, have emerged because of what happened in an earlier period. Um, by their, the people who, were, who thought they were doing good things. Um, but yeah, I think, I, think, and I think that's the challenge today is that, you know, inventors have to pay attention to things like lobbying. They sometimes have to do it themselves. Um, to be, to be pro-innovation can mean very specific and different things based on the period or the place that we're looking at. Um, so what's interesting, I think, about the period, and I think what people can learn from the period, and this is what you know, the book that I've been writing, the culmination of all this will be about, is really a kind of guide to what happens in each, you know, every few decades, what were the new challenges they faced, what were the institutions they were developing, not just kind of changing formal institutions imposed from above, but also coming up with informal institutions, societies, groups, lobby groups, um, norms, even cultural norms of how inventors interact with one another um, to solve those challenges. You know, for example, some inventors like James Watt are famous for being quite aggressive with the use of patents. And so, but at the same time, you've got a lot of other inventors trying to, you know, he gets accused by other inventors of being ungentlemanly, right? This is a kind, this is norm enforcement taking, trying to, that they're trying to do here um, to try and make it, make people less aggressive with 
particular institutions that have been developed by inventors you know decades earlier and a last question before we head to our formal wrap-up is sort of i, I want to it's in the same vein as what i was just asking you but now i want to talk about sort of and I know I might not get a pointed answer to this because, again, it's, it's a vast sort of thing that I'm uncovering here. But, you know, in terms of to, like where we are today, we're recording this in 2021, where when you look around and you think of this improving mentality, this whole story that we trace, eventually we end up on the present timeline. And one, one thing, and it touches on something we talked about in our conversation here, is that on the one hand, obvi- obviously, innovation and technological process is heading you know, into the future and in a very strong sense, like specifically when it comes to certain technologies. I mean, we're... we're it, it's amazing. I hope someone listens to this at some point 50 years down the road because, you know, like we're looking at the point here where, you know, rockets are launching every day and we're talking about commercial space travel, like, you know, being at our fingertips and all this crazy stuff happening. And even on, you know, the personal technology side, you know, touchscreen technology and all this great stuff is heading into the future. And we're talking about augmented reality and all this great stuff from a, from a technological perspective. But when it comes to this sort of fabricant, savant, all this cool stuff that we hear about previously and the innovation mentality, and uh, and sort of more of this openness of innovation and and this sort of um, mentality becoming spread across many different kinds of people. Today, it appears, and you tell me if I'm being too cynical, that on the one hand, we really do revere technological progress, and we as we should. But on the other hand, um, it seems that there's another footnote to our mentality, and this is back to a point you're making before that it seems people feel. And maybe this is because of patents or just the, the the kind of system we live in today with huge industries that certain innovation belongs to and and sticks in within certain industries. Let's say it's very isolated in some ways. You know, you have as you said, Silicon Valley and and computer technology and and that's sort of like innovation over there for them. And then you have this sort of regimented system of big industries that do their own thing and and they push technological innovation forward. And on top of that. They spend tons of time in court trying to sue people over where the button is placed on an iPad. So it's, it's very interesting, I guess. This I'm sort of wondering aloud here, because on the one hand, it's very interesting technological innovation where we're at now. But but on the other hand, how it's happening and, and who's controlling it and how that, that's working is, is also an interesting thing to me, too. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. So, I mean, the thing I'd say is that I think innovation is more widespread nowadays than than we give give it credit, you know. There's a lot of innovation taking place, and this is my standard example, but it's always the one that comes first to mind in, you know, how good coffee is. And not just, and not just like, not how good the coffee itself is, but how well coffee is served. You know, a hipster coffee shop, it's, not even, it's kind of weird to even call them hipster coffee shops because everyone goes to really fancy coffee shops nowadays, right? Just a few, just a few years ago, if you, if you didn't go to Starbucks, you would be considered, you know, even like, oh, that's so fancy. And actually, I was I was watching um, the Devil Wears Prada the other day, and and like the the coffee that they that she has to get for you know the evil evil boss is a Starbucks coffee, as though that's like some fancy coffee compared to the maybe the rubbish coffee that they had in other places. Like, you know, there's we've actually seen some quite dramatic development in just basic service type stuff or the kinds of things that we experience that seem really trivial. They seem really minor. And I, I call this the paradox of progress. Right. So at a piece. Um, a few months ago, uh, it was around the new year. So around the new year, 2021, on my um, newsletter, just kind of pointing out that, look, we actually have great leaps forward in loads of industries all the time that we actually just don't notice because industries as a proportion of the entire economy are getting smaller and smaller and narrower and narrower. You know, coffee is a tiny proportion of all food and food is a proportion of the economy's teeny weeny nowadays. 
it's like but agriculture barely even registers it's like so tiny it's like less than one percent of all of the like gross value added for most economies unless you happen to be like a, an economy that specializes just in that thing right so you know in britain it used to be you know before the 16th century agriculture is the largest one and actually agriculture has grown in absolute terms since then in terms of its value dramatically but as a proportion of the whole, it's gotten tiny. So if you're an inventor who comes up with a way to improve the, 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 your plow, let's say in the 16th century, that's a big deal, right? That's like, if that's 60% of the whole economy is agriculture and plowing is used for most of that, that is a huge invention. Even if it's like a 1% improvement from your plow, let's say. Now compare to today, let's say you come up with 100% improvement to the plow like it's like doubly efficient as it was before, but because agriculture is now tiny, nobody notices. Like you're actually a better, you're a more effective inventor than the one in, six, in the 16th century, but nobody cares anymore because other things are larger and, none, and nothing is as large as a, as, as, as a, as a total. You know, there's a reason that, that, the, that the textiles industry is so famous. Like when we think of the Industrial Revolution, people think of cotton. Right, they, and they can often name if, if you're if like in British textbooks you'll see John Kay and Richard Arkwright and, and James Hargreaves and loads of other people like that. And the only reason that they're famous, even though you've actually got amazing things happening in textile technology today, where like robots are like you know doing what had to be done with you know people with extremely skilled fingers to like get the threads and like connect them and and spin them at certain at speeds. Like all of this stuff is still proceeding forward and improving dramatically at such an incredible rate. But because textiles nowadays is tiny in, in most economies, even in, you know, I, I did it, I actually went and looked at the figures. In China, I think it's something about 7%. China is like the major textiles producer in the world, right? 7% of their economy is textiles. If you look at Britain in, in the 18th century, textiles is at least 15% or so. Right. So any inventor who comes up with their huge dramatic improvement in textiles back then is doubly as important for that economy as, as anyone who's to, who may who, who may do the same in, in, in China, perhaps more so. Right. Depending on the exact proportions. So this is what I think is happening is that actually invention is accelerating, continues to accelerate. And actually a lot of people, you know, a lot of these some of these industries have big industries, as you say, they're big firms, big, you know, and so only a few people seem to have control of those things. But actually, I think a lot of them are things that you know, ordinary people are able to do all the time. And the other thing I'd point out is that one of the most important things I think that helps spread the improving mentality is to actually, and maybe this is a myth, I don't think it's a myth though, is that anyone can be an inventor, right? Anyone I think can be an inventor. If you look at the sample of inventors that I've collected, or if you just look at any people who've been inventors in human history, they're extremely diverse. Now, maybe you've got, in my period, certainly there are more men showing up in my data set than there are women, but that's for various other reasons. That's not, to, that's not because women can't invent. That's really obvious, right? It's, it's, that, it's that there are loads of barriers that prevented women from doing that, or they were put into, they were kind of forced into other kinds of industry, or not industry, but other kinds of activity, you know, homemaking or having, you know, just, it's it's like a, it's socially unacceptable for them to do certain things, and so that kind of prevents that from happening. Um, but actually, anyone can be an inventor, and I think that's also true when it when it's kind of rich versus poor. Like I, I like to say that I like to point out that you know to be an innovator does not mean that you have to already be a billionaire like Elon Musk. 
Like he didn't start out a billionaire, right? He started out like a normal person, like everyone else who happened to be obsessive about optimizing things and then kind of latched onto one thing that happened to be a success. Um, and I think this is, this is also a kind of area where the way that often invention is portrayed in the media can be extremely bad in that it's often associated with billionaire technologists to the extent that, you know, my favorite example is Tony Stark, Iron Man, right? And not, and actually he's inaccessible, not just because of his riches, because, you know, he invents the Iron Man suit where he's in captivity in the Middle East somewhere. He actually does, yeah, you know, like kind of Taliban controlled area or something. Like, I, I can't remember exactly. Um, but like, he's a genius, right? And that's actually another thing that I think is a myth that, again, invention isn't just associated with skill. I don't think you necessarily have to be a genius to be an inventor either. Like an optimizer is someone who's not necessarily kind of inspired in some way. They're not the kind of people who are going to solve time travel in an evening, which is what he does in one of the movies. You know, that's, that's ridiculous. Uh, but the fact that we, you know, there's a kind of trade-off there in a sense that Iron Man kind of makes invention seem cool, and that's great but also it makes it inaccessible. And I think that's just not true, right? Throughout all of human history, invention is something that very ordinary people have done, rich and poor, urban and rural, you know, men and women, you know, it's like, it's an extremely diverse group of people and they're often doing it very successfully. Um, and certainly you have successful and unsuccessful inventors, but that doesn't make the unsuccessful inventors any less great, I think. And the innovations and inventions themselves can be big or small, because as you said, with the Iron Man thing, we can make science and tech look cool. And that's really great. But on the other hand, as you said, the way it's portrayed in, in media, whether it be even the news media or just like media more generally when it comes to entertainment, a lot of what's portrayed is sort of that one huge light bulb idea and then overnight the world changes and we see this all in movies right it's like you like you said we sat down at our desk one day and solved time travel and that's an invention yeah, invention yeah. whereas it has nothing to do with changing the angle on like a you know a, a plow or something in the field or something like that well what's often celebrated is this idea of these huge leaps forwards right as if someone went to a basement in the 90s and came out with an iphone a couple of years later or something which is not the way yeah. that, that happens right it's well even even when that does happen even if you did go to a basement design the iphone seemingly from nothing the reality of what you actually did was you started with something crude and mm -hmm. you made it better and better and better and better. You optimized, right? It is a marginal process. Every the thing that inventors actually do is extremely marginal, right? The like the iPhone is incredible, right? Like it's like like whenever I use my phone, I'm like, oh my god, you know, this, this is an incredible thing. But it's incredible because people have paid attention to things that are seemingly really trivial. Right. Every trivial thing is something that someone has thought about and tried to make better. And the reason that the iPhone whatever, 12 is, is better than the iPhone one or whatever, because people have like they're and they're actually markedly different. Right. When you when you put these things side by side, you're like, well, they're effect effectively essentially the same thing. Right. But then you look at the difference between them and this looks like a great leap forward, but actually has taken place over years. And, 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 and when it's even one person who seems to be responsible for a great leap forward, when you look at their process as an individual, and you actually kind of kind of explode that out and look within the black box there, you notice that again, what they've done is just marginal, lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of marginal improvements. So yeah, this is, I mean, this is the thing that I think the paradox of progress kind of makes here is that we, I think, I, I think have, we have much more progress than ever, much more invention than ever, but the impact of each individual change that we make is, is getting smaller as a proportion of the whole, because actually sometimes the inventions are, are creating whole new industries that again, shrink everything else relative to the whole. Now I think there's perhaps, perhaps a, a one kind of, one 
uh, exception there, which is perhaps energy technology, because everything requires energy. And some people have made the case to me that perhaps, you know, if, if AI gets good enough that it, it's, it itself can do invention, then that's maybe a game changer as well for everything. Or perhaps finances actually have a huge impact because, again, everything requires resources. So, you know, there are other things that perhaps can can be very large game changers in the way that the power loom, whatever, from a few hundred years ago, seemed like a massive game changer in terms of the scale and of the impact. But that doesn't make the person who, you know, when we think about medical technology, right, we think about, okay, what's the big one, like curing cancer or something or living forever, right? right? These are obviously great things that we should be doing. But at the same time, we've had amazing changes in just like, you know, the drugs that treat very, very rare diseases that maybe like five people in the whole world suffer. And they're like, a 10% improvement in the drug that does that is huge for those people, right? That doesn't make the invention and the investment that went into making their lives that bit better any less valuable than the person who has been doing stuff with a kind of broader remit or in terms of like how we value invention or the process, right? The process was no different. With that, our time has certainly wound down here. So I'm just going to push us into our uh, our formal wrap up here. So in each episode, Anton, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word to actually tie things up and in, in the following manner. So let me just say, we've talked about a lot. If we can bring the conversation full circle and have you put a finer point on our exploration of the questions, let me ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on what powered innovation in Britain and what powers the improving mentality in general? That is to say, if, if you wanted someone to leave everything we've talked about with one or two or a few takeaways, what would those ultimately be if they grabbed anything from our chat today? I want them to think that invention is something that anyone can do, that inventors can apply themselves to improving anything, that you know, even if you're unskilled, that you can you know, find a way to get over that, 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 that gap, skill gap, either through self-education or through asking other people to kind of help you with elements of it, um, that anyone can be an inventor. And then also that when people are inventors, when they become inventors, when they get this mentality of optimizing things, of trying to make things better along you know, whatever metric they choose, that they then try to pass that on. Because that, I think, is ultimately why it is that Britain became the source of or the site really of this acceleration of innovation is because the inventors there weren't just keeping things to themselves. They weren't just inventing and then kind of trying to profit as much as possible from their invention. Um, but they were trying to balance those personal interests with also trying to spread invention as far as possible. Trying to, they, they envisaged, I think quite clearly, the kinds of things that could be achieved if, if the improvements, the small, but very marginal things that they were doing could be done on a grander scale. I didn't, and I think, you know, if we transported them to today and we showed them the world that their inventions and their the subsequent generations of inventors have created, I think they would be very, very pleased indeed. I think that's a great place to leave it. So Anton Howes, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thanks. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. 